Okay, so hello and welcome to our latest podcast about the BBC Soma project that we worked on earlier in the year. If you've been reading our blog, you'll know an enormous amount about this project because we've written quite a lot of blog posts about it. It was very interesting, highly experimental and quite an unusual project for us uh, in a few ways that we'll discuss in this podcast. With me, I've got Stephen Rice, Alex Holmes and Francois Jordan, who were the rest of the team on the project. Um, and we're going to go through some of our experience and what we've learned on that project. Right. So, Francois, hello. Hi there. <laughs> so, uh, Francois was responsible for the user experience design. Um, and this was quite a challenging project from that respect, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, we had only eight weeks in the project. Um, and... That is that does not allow for a lengthy upfront discovery process. We had to be busy developing real software pretty much from the first week, and the developers needed some solid specs to work with at least by week two. So we were working in quite a sort of time compressed time frame, and that required also a great deal of overlap between the design process and the development process, which poses quite a lot of challenges. Well, there was a lot of change. I remember. Like really from, from the word go, not just about how things would work, but even what the requirements were and our understanding of them. Well, the, the BBC stakeholders were intimately involved through this process. We saw them almost on a daily basis. Um, we also, um, running this as an agile project, needed to have this regular show and tells to them, and that, in, that was both to demonstrate software work in progress, but also, of course, the design work in progress. So we had to work quite collaboratively with them. This, uh, the BBC stakeholders included uh, both people with uh, experience in video mixing, in other words, people with a, a long background in that sort of audiovisual sort of area, as well as the technical experts whose software we were interfacing with. Anyway, so we, the, the initial stages of design was uh, done very collaboratively involving myself, the BBC stakeholders as well as the developers we were one room we were working exclusively on whiteboards at this stage we wanted the design process to be uh, highly, or it needed to be highly sort of flexible and changeable at this stage, I couldn't do the usual thing where I gathered a lot of requirements, went away for a week or two and came back with some designs that would, we didn't have the time for that and it wouldn't, wouldn't have been as collaborative as we wanted to be. So everybody was involved in the, making the initial design decisions on whiteboards so that by the end of the first week we had a fairly good idea of how this application will be structured enough so to, for, for some development to start on the main architecture. I remember one of the most useful experiences for me early on was visiting the mixing gallery um, they had, they've got these over in Manchester, and they it's, was it BBC News? It BBC is News Breakfast. BBC Breakfast. Um, that's broadcast from there, and we went into the gallery there, talked to a channel director and someone doing the video mixing, and that really helped understand exactly what their jobs really were, because it's all quite abstract when you're talking to people about it, but you see the equipment they use. Completely. Then you can imagine the sort of situation where the users of the operators are going to be when they use this. The other thing that was incredibly useful for me from those sort of research sessions was we learned the language that they use, because we couldn't 
design something with um, a vocabulary completely uh, meaningful only to ourselves. We wanted to make sure that we were choosing the words that the operators and people working in this space are familiar with. So, um, and that this is also something that needed to be established very early on, uh, so that we don't constantly find ourselves misunderstanding each other or using obsolete terms for something which we know the client is is calling something else. You were quite resistant, though, to using some of the terms that are common inside the BBC, VTs and dogs and lower thirds and things like that. Yeah, well, uh, there's some quite esoteric jargon, and um, I did try to avoid some jargon uh, uh, in some cases, but in so in definitely in some cases we ended up back with the, uh, the, the jargon, which was just, um, if you find the, the BBC stakeholders sort of always lapsing into using particular terms, because that's what they're most familiar with and comfortable with, even if it is a term that's meaningless to a layman, that is still what people are comfortable using. So, yeah, that's what we settled on. I think we did manage to resist using Aston, didn't we, to mean we did. Uh, lower third uh, <laughs> yes. on the basis of the Aston mm. system. But Aston really is an old BBC. It's really old, well, they're, yeah. not com- they're not completely consistent in that respect either. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, we did speak to uh, people who used, um, for who have used in their entire career, used one term, and others who have used a different term. Um, but I don't think they even use Aston machinery anymore. No, I mean, it is like completely <laughs> obsolete. Term. But what we have to bear in mind that they had they wanted this application to be usable by um, non-experts, people with a relatively small amount of experience in uh, video mixing. So, and we also had user testing sessions with BBC employees who only had a, a very uh, passing acquaintance with this, with, with both the project and this. Um, techniques and we wanted people to get uh, sort of understand it uh, even coming to it from uh, such a background so we had their needs to take into account as well Um, one of the other things I I personally that struck me personally while we were there was their incredible facilities their user experience like testing lab is the best I've ever seen yeah, it's, um, it's truly baked into the very DNA of the BBC um, user-centred design. I mean, I've looked up to the BBC as a bastion of user-centred design since the early 2000s. And um, when they um, set up these offices, clearly that was always going to be uh, a centrepiece of their, their practice. So they've got their own dedicated um, testing suite uh, with a viewing room um, and recording equipment. I could literally walk over to the testing suite within 20 seconds and our BBC client stakeholders that were incredibly helpful in just gathering five to ten people at the drop of a hat for, for testing, which basically made my life so much easier because it can be, on many projects, it can be very onerous to set up testing sessions so in this case, it allowed, within the eight-week time frame, we were able to uh, have four rounds of user testing, starting with paper prototypes where we literally just put printouts of the wireframes in front of users where they were just touch pointing where they would be clicking and so on. Uh, later on with static HTML mockups and eventually with the alpha application. Um, but we were the, the user tests were quite lightweight in that we there was no requirement really to record the tests and and create detailed summaries 
presented back. I rolled back the findings directly into the designs by the end of the, d- the day, and we used the weekly show-and-tell sessions with the BBC to just uh, provide to them the top-line findings. So that was one of the unusual aspects of this project with the degree in which we were able to do user testing. One of the other really uh, different parts was the use of WebRTC, which, uh, if for those who don't know, I can't believe you don't know what WebRTC is, it's, um, it's a real-time video and other stuff protocol for the web that's used for things like Google Hangouts and such things. It was chosen as the implementation for the uh, technology for the video part of the application and the audio, um, and Alex here was involved in handling the implementation. There was a choice, wasn't there, between Dash and WebRTC? That's right, yeah. So um, it was, I don't know, in many ways we the, the decision had been made before we arrived, um, and a number of other projects that the BBC had, well, BBC R&D had done before we arrived had um, been kind of lining, lining their ducks up so that they could have uh, this IP Studio uh, video pipeline piping this live uh, video all the way to a WebRTC endpoint and I think they were quite keen to see that used um, in in this application uh, the thing that they were trying to get around was that the alternative, Dash uh, which just has effectively a bunch of different sized video files available on the network and then this protocol just uh, monitors um, how effectively that's being streamed to the client and then you know picks a higher or lower quality um video endpoint depending on how things are going the downside to that is that you've got a five second buffer typically five second buffer Um, and what that means is that if you're doing live broadcast then you're always going to be at least five seconds out Um, which was a bit tragic really because the whole IP studio infrastructure was set up to to reduce latency um, you know reducing the number of points in the network at which it was all being synchronised so WebRTC on the face of it, it seemed like a, a good approach. It's got the, the word real-time in it. Which it's got the word real-time in it. Um, yeah. Uh, it certainly does have low latency. And in the video conferencing, in the video conferencing use case, that's absolutely crucial. It's mm-hmm. more important than anything else, in fact, that you know, it doesn't seem like you're talking to someone who's on the moon, no. which it would do with Dash. But yeah, in this application, latency maybe wasn't actually... Although everything else was engineered for low latency in the end a five second lag when you're broadcasting over the internet is, is nothing right? that's right um, but it did otherwise have some issues didn't it very tightly coupled with the video conference yeah so it seems like apart from the in this project we were quite lucky in that we only had to target Chrome and actually Chrome probably has the most advanced WebRTC implementation of all of the browsers even though I think much of it was driven by Mozilla However, other browsers like Safari have limited or no support. Safari only just got their support and people have been very critical of it since it came out because they've barely implemented any of the spec. Chrome suffered from many of the same problems, really, in that um, there is a pretty fully formed spec about how you do this stuff. But the only real use case that this has been implemented for is peer-to-peer video conferencing. What that means is that in instances where you have a single server and you're streaming multiple video and audio streams, which we were in this case, um, even though the spec says it can be done, it can't be done. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were probably the first people to try some of the things that you were trying, right? Very likely, yes. And um, if you're the first person to try something with a computer, it doesn't work. No, and also case. if you're the first person to try something with a computer and you're 
on a short time frame and you know, then all of these, yeah. then it's problematic. Um, the main issue that we had was, was actually synchronisation in that um, a WebRTC uh, peer connection can have multiple video and audio streams uh, within it and each of those would be uh, synchronised, which is exactly what we wanted. Um, ideally, we'd have just had one peer connection to the server and then it would have streamed all of the various different audio and video streams to us however sadly none of the browsers have implemented this and each of them only support a single video and a single audio stream and actually even if you do something even simpler than that and just send one audio stream or one video stream then it has problems and we were working around browser bugs and and real bleeding edge like issues all the way through yeah, and the documentation was virtually non-existent. That's right, very yeah, <laughs> scant. Um, so, yeah, don't use WebRTC in 2017. Was what we discovered <laughs> yeah. after having done it. <laughs> so, I think for the main use case, even actually for the main use case, so I, I play D and D on a website called Roll Twenty, which, which uses this uh, peer-to-peer uh, WebRTC system. Um, it's Chrome only. However, on Chrome, it's fairly effective. You can chat to your friends while playing yeah. desk, uh, tabletop video ga- table yeah, tabletop games. However, even that drops out occasionally for reasons at times where it feels like other other means of peer to peer video conferencing wouldn't. Um, you know, you can have a fairly stable hangout for an hour, switch to Roll Twenty, and it'll drop a few times. Yeah, hangouts are WebRTC, aren't they? I was under the impression there was a plug-in in there as well. Well, maybe there is. Yeah, that's right. So Roll20 used to use Flash, which was mm. equally unreliable. Quite. But it's interesting, the death of Flash has meant that there are areas, that, that you, you, that places it used to fill that now we just can't really replace yet. Mm-hmm. JavaScript isn't quite there. Some of the protocols aren't quite there either. No. Um, and also there's, there's just generally with all of these very modern browser specs um, a real a real difficult trade-off to be made between like how easy and accessible you make these 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 APIs and and how low level they are and you know for various bits like the peer connection and also uh, even the web audio stuff that we did you can say ramp the gain in the following way but you can't go deeper than that you can't go any lower level yeah. um, and you actually lose a lot that way Absolutely, because of the way it's sandboxed and enclosed when you're in JavaScript, you only have the features they make yeah. available to you, right? Quite. So in terms of Hangouts, um, it might be WebRTC on Chrome. However, on Safari, it's it definitely isn't. not and yeah. on the other browsers. Yeah, and it was interesting that this was... You know, the, the goal for this was to build a browser-based application to make it... Because there are many, applica- many advantages to a browser-based application in terms of software distribution and management. You don't have to handle an installed base. You know, if somebody gets a bug, they just hit reload, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But potentially other platforms like Unity, perhaps, or something that has very good support for these kinds of things might might have worked better. Yeah. Um, but, of course, it wouldn't have achieved the overall... Because this was an experimental project, so it working perfectly all the time weirdly isn't the goal. No, it was never the goal, Which is normally the goal for the software that we build. That's right. Yeah, um, that kind of long-term robustness is our our kind of major metric for for success, and yet in this case, we were working on other ones. Yeah, absolutely. So to address, one of the challenges with coordinating all these dozens of streams and events and everything else is how you manage that within your software. And and we selected uh, something called observables, which is a system for managing these things. I don't want to go into too much detail about it because it's somewhat mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing to me when I first came across it. Um, 
And, uh, and very rapidly mind-blowing. Very, very. You through very quickly. Almost immediately mind-blowing, yes. Well, I had quite a lot of new things to deal with that first week, of which this was one of many. Mm. Um, having never used WebRTC observables or video mixing myself, <laughs> it was a, it was quite quite hard. Um, and we found the observables were a great concept, I think, with a poor implementation, with a fair way of putting it. Yeah, that's right. So the, the basic idea that you've got these... Uh, it's really hard to explain, isn't it? It, it, yeah, it handles suddenly, like, str- streams, streams of things that can be managed asynchronously, asynchronously, which is one of the hardest problems that there is in terms of software. That's right. right. We, we effectively, in this project, were poking loads and loads of things externally, asynchronously, um, and we had to coordinate all of that. Um, coming into the system, we had video streams, data streams, timing streams, audio streams and the various metadata associated with those things. Going out of the system, we had like orchestration instructions, we had video playback instructions, we had um, many other things besides... Oh, we even had um, um, like site usage statistics, that yep. kind of thing, mm-hmm. metrics yeah. on that. Key, so, key, key presses, all sorts of things. They're exactly. all, all happening simultaneously. And if, if you're listening to this and you've never heard the word asynchronous before, um, it is... It, it, what it means is is things not not happening in a in a defined sequence, so they can all happen potentially um, in their own time and potentially with delays imposed by other people. And if you've ever tried to design a business process that involves requests coming into people and then later on things happen and those requests get answered, you'll know that they're quite unreliable. Stuff is easy to lose, mm. um, and so a system for managing those processes is really valuable. And but they're not all created equal. Many of these things are fire and forget. Like if you if someone uh, uses a particular button, we do care. We want to know that they use that button and we can aggregate those statistics later to see how people are using our software. But ultimately, we don't need to know that that no. message was delivered. We don't really care um, so long as we get most of those messages. However, other ones, like crucial orchestration instructions for like cut the video at this time, yeah. are very important. And we can't, for example, uh, send a uh, cut to the video uh, instruction until the uh, play the video instruction has been sent Absolutely. and accepted. Yep. So there's there's an inherent order to these things. Um, what I found most challenging, we used um, RxJS, which is one of the most commonly used observable libraries, and the hardest thing for us, or for me personally, was debugging. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it, it massively frustrating. There'd be a bug, you go and look at the traceworks, or go and you know put a breakpoint in your code, and it was just gibberish. Yes. Vast two hundred line tracebacks, none of which were in my code. Mm. And it's like, oh, great, thanks very much. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a few reasons for this. Um, firstly, there were some design decisions in RxJS that meant that it was, it would often skip over the important part of a, of the code, the code that was broken. Apart from that, browsers are also just not particularly good. Chrome's getting better. I hear Firefox has also made improvements in their dev tooling uh, for like actually capturing those asynchronous errors. It's a really I'm just, I'm just, la- I'm just laughing because back in the days of IE6, we would have killed for the tooling we have. Oh, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> like, you know. it was it was just console statements. That was that was it. That yeah. was all we had to do. Fucking. That's well, the thing we've become so used to. You know, all these tools yeah. that are available to us when yeah. we're doing normal kind of synchronous one by one stuff. Yes, you know, yeah. you're looking for that particularly for the asynchronous kind of stuff. Yeah, because it's that much more complicated. Yeah, absolutely, and in a in the single threaded JavaScript model, it's inherently difficult to manage this. 
with debugging these asynchronous things because it ends up being handled by closures and they're just scattered all throughout your code, right? There are other pro programming models that make this easier, but none of them are available in the browser, unfortunately. No, we're very, very much limited by that. Yeah. But the dev tooling is is part of what makes it possible at all. Yes. And actually, like you speak to people who use quite modern, really well-regarded modern languages. Mm. Um, you know, JavaScript is not a well-regarded modern no, language. It isn't. However, um, you speak to people who do maybe Scala or mm. Clojure or these things, the tooling is just nowhere near. No, no, virtually non-existent because JavaScript it's has. far, far fewer programmers, mm. actually. You know, so who's going to go out and write, you know, closure debuggers and IDEs, right? Nobody. <laughs> Not to <laughs> mention that. Why would they do that? You know, Chrome is, you know, has its own ecosystem. Yeah. It's very much in Google's interest to heavily invest in it because Absolutely. it drives their revenue. And, yep. yeah, so. and yes, they have a strategic need to control the desktop. Mm. They do. And you do find that there is this competition between browsers so that as one browser adds a certain dev tool, it's not long before it pops up in the other That's one. That's right. Yeah, um, sometime later it may pop up in Edge, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but certainly Chrome yeah. versus... Because it's, um, it's really important to have a debugger for Firefox. something used to download Chrome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it downloads Chrome well, Edge is working. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the, the, other, the other problem that I had with um, RxJS, and this is a, a common problem across lots of software, is that the, uh, the documentation was poor, although there was quite a, there was some of it. I mean, it was quite nice. There was some. But the main criticism of the documentation was that it was worse for having more. It was, yeah. You know, there was a so, lot of documentation that didn't say anything. My real problem with it was the examples, right? There were quite a lot of examples, and they were all really noddy things that you would never actually write. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you read it, you read the example, and you go, oh, yeah, so I can split up a click stream in the browser into groups of five. That, that's ace. I sort of understand that. But it's not a thing you ever do, no. right? And it could massively have profited from three or four, you know, re real-world examples that, that were worked through, like, because you can kind of see how each of the little bits make, but what the challenge is the whys, right? The design decisions. Why would I do it like this Definitely. rather than like that? And I banged my head against it. I wasted quite a lot of time trying to understand things that turned out to be fundamental and quite simple mm -hmm. if only the examples had been there yeah. underscore lodash kind of other utility libraries in the same vein yeah. they they're very good actually they are, coming yeah. up with really really short yeah. concise concise examples yeah. of why you want this function yes and lodash with its its operators which were effectively yeah. the same um, did just failed just just didn't yeah. and many of them were like missing and others were would use things like you know generate 10 random numbers yeah. and convert them into something yeah. like... Do you remember we spent like three days on what's the difference between merge map and switch map? Yes, just a really fundamental really, really, of it. really fundamental parts of it. And uh, I, I've forgotten now, <laughs> but, yeah. but at the time it was like, it must be that, but why don't they just say that? Yes. And I don't know why they don't just say that. Absolutely. They could have just said it. There was, there was a lot of RxJS that we had to reverse engineer yeah. on the, as we went through it, and that was tough. Yeah, but actually when it worked it was spectacular. So, mm. so and also, I, I still don't believe that we'd have been able to deliver no. something of this no, no, no. complexity. No, absolutely. Um, it did at least, it meant we had to fix all the bugs at the point at which we wrote the code. Mm. <laughs> Otherwise, we would have had you know, bugs scattered throughout the code with um, like distance effects in time and space where once it breaks, you just have no idea where the bug was introduced, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I'm very glad we used it, but boy, it was frustrating. <laughs> so, so the final thing that was new... To me, um, entirely new to me, in fact, because it's not the kind of thing I do that often. It was actually doing video mixing in the browser, and it was Ricey here who 
who did most of the, the heavy lifting on that in between his trips to France and Ireland. <laughs> um, so what we needed was, was to be able to crop, fade, produce overlays and do chroma keying in the browser. Um, and chroma key being... Uh, spontaneous transparency yeah green like screen, green, green screens yeah, yeah, yeah green screens um, and uh, you did that using something called video context yeah um, so in my uh, brief appearances in Manchester I think I was there for all of four four and a half weeks across the <laughs> but anyway um, I made use of a library that some uh, BBC colleagues had produced called video context uh, which I understand was um, the, the model of how it works is based on web audio so there's already uh, an audio context that exists um, and that allowed uh, us to um, connect up different um, nodes that um, into a sort of mesh that, that, that provided a design for how the video was going to be processed. So you had video inputs um, and then effects nodes and compositing nodes uh, and then finally an output. Um, so it allowed you to sort of set up uh, a set of uh, things that were going to process the video how you wanted and then you could feed things in and out, flip switches, um, and lo and behold it would render uh, within the browser screen how, how you wanted it to. And the, you need to, but you needed to write or cut and paste at least some uh, OpenGL shader. Well, code. yeah, I mean the um, the model for it. Uh, I mean it was it was nice in that they they'd obviously based it on audio context, but it also kind of reflected how the actual IP Studio renderer was going to work. Um, so what we were doing in the web browser was basically simulating um, the video mixing that was going to happen um, and then allowing the operator to make, send instructions um, which would then go off to um, the renderer and you know, produce the real um, broadcast quality video. But we had to also simulate that um, in the web browser. And you could tell when it was being simulated because the fans came on really, uh, yes. really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the first job was trying to work out what, what sort of sets of nodes that you need to assemble to do this stuff and then the effects that you needed to do to actually fade between two video sources and so on. And there were some preset uh, effects provided, but as the uh, requirements became clearer, uh, I find myself having to delve in and write my own um, OpenGL um, uh, fragment shaders, which it, I, you know, I thought thought Sharon was the game's programmer, but there we are. Yeah. Myself doing it. Um, and I did all I did was just page past the open gel and go. Oh, I'm not even looking oh, at that. Yes. That's just really remarkably sort of you know, really C-like kind of stuff wedged in the middle of your JavaScript. And it was. But I mean, it's nice because you know you were writing this thing, and rather than it being a single thread of JavaScript doing stuff pixel by pixel, it was going off the GPU and being done um, mm. in parallel. And you know, it, it did work. Although, yes, the fans did come on. <laughs> But, I mean, we were able to, uh, you know, when we discovered that we weren't going to be able to get a cropped uh, video source from, uh, from the underlying system, we we're going to have to crop it ourselves. It was nice that I could just put a bit of extra yeah. um, OpenGL scripting in to actually crop the video on the to, way To actually do the, the cropping, yeah. yeah. So we did green screening, and we did cropping, and we did fading, um, and, uh, all, you know, controlled and by performance. like, at the end, you know, ultimately, we got to the point where there were, like, seven WebGL contexts, you know, maybe more yeah. at times each of which were doing really complex compositing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. In a browser. Yeah, yeah you know, you had absolutely. tons of the, you know, you had like as many videos as you want playing at yeah. once, each of them processed, uh, each of them rendering and, and showing what's going to happen. I mean, that's where we did start to hit some of the limits of the technology um, in that uh, you can only have 
16 OpenGL contexts in, in, a, in a web browser session. 16? That's <laughs> a strangely 16. round well, number. Well, you know, I mean, the thing is that I think most people you'd expect would have one canvas element on the screen, one big yeah. thing maybe, maybe the full screen, and mm. use that and do some quite demanding stuff. I don't think they really expected people to have 16 separate ones in, well, you know, again, arranged so just, in a grid. <laughs> just as the uh, WebRTC was like designed for... Peer, you know, one peer-to-peer yeah. conversation. <laughs> I imagine the WebGL context. They were like, "Well, people aren't going to want well, to play more than sixteen games yeah. of Quake at once." Well, exactly. Yeah, in the yeah, browser. Yeah. <laughs> but they might want fifteen. But <laughs> <laughs> <That's it. laughs> yes. exactly fifteen. I do have friends who want that? <laughs> I mean, it feels like something of an arbitrary number. I suspect because if you have any more on that, then your your GPU will melt or something. Mm, so yeah, you know. the GPU did a bit of melting when we had like seven or eight. But well, yeah, we had yeah. they were well. It depended on the computer it ran. Right. Yeah. On a very powerful Mac, it was fine. On some of the dev, dev machines, it, it struggled a bit. I think it depends on how much um, support for the MGL stuff your, your graphics card has got, really. Yeah. But you know, it's it's one. It's another one of these things that worked this year. I don't yes. think it had worked last year, no. and it may well go a bit no. smoother and next year. And actually, but I think we were. It's interesting, isn't it? In fact, if we'd started the project six months sooner, it may not have succeeded <laughs> yeah. just because <laughs> the underlying technology wasn't wasn't up to it. Mm. Mm. How easy was it to debug the fragment shading stuff? Um, there wasn't really much debugging because okay. um, I mean it's just packaged up, compiled, compiled by the, the graphics driver and executed within the the, the, uh, the, the GPU. So there's no kind of breakpoints yeah. in there. Yes. You just kind of run it, look at what comes out, and go. Yeah, that's not oh, right. Okay, hang on, that's <laughs> upside down. I, yeah. yes. So I had, to, I had to do maths, Doug. I saw, I, sure. <laughs> I saw, I saw you doing maths, and it's it's you know maybe only once a decade you actually have to do maths in programming. Yeah, I, I didn't become a programmer to do maths. No, absolutely. No matter what James Damore might say. Um, <laughs> and one of the challenges with debugging all of these things was, um, you know, there's not much tooling for debugging distributed systems generally, right? You just end up, you know, inspecting packets on the network and stuff like that. Um, and my experience with doing things like your video mixing is, is when it doesn't work, it often just just doesn't work. You know, like mm-hmm. literally nothing happens, and yeah. you don't really know why, and you just don't know how to change stuff randomly until something happens, and you can work yes. out what's going on. Bisect, find a minimal working yeah, thing, exactly. then make it big again. Yeah, the, yeah. the worst case of that for me in this was the VTs, where uh, where I had to uh, reverse engineer the C plus plus for the VT player, or well, uh, at their end in IP Studio, and then just. And literally, I was just reading random bits of C and putting together packets on the network. We should and say that VTs are pre-recorded video. Pre-recorded videos, that's or right. Or video tapes. Video tapes. Run VT. Even though at no point did any tapes no. actually get played. No, to my knowledge. Um, and, um, and I was just absolutely amazed when it pretty much worked first time. At least it played the videos, and actual video came out the other end. It was just amazing. That <laughs> Though you amazing. were heavily incentivized by you know, the... The Fiona Bruce countdown. <laughs> I really, really uh, audio wanted to I really, really wanted at the, the end fe- of the VTs. Yeah, so, so there was a feature where we, we had some recordings of Fiona Bruce reading a countdown, which was used in another BBC product for playing VTs, and I really, really wanted to get it in there because it was such a nice to have. So, yeah, I was. I mean, it was. There's motivated. a genuine fun- functional need for that. There in is. That, you know, yeah. people who are doing this sort of operations are looking at other things, yeah. so they need this audio Absolutely. prompt as to how long there is left. It wasn't entirely so arbitrary. It's true. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't just because I wanted to hear Fiona Bruce's use voice. It was, it was a crime that, was that, a, arrived, that yeah. arose from our Absolutely. visit to... Uh, but it was a sweet, sweet feature. It was. <laughs> it was. Um, uh, the UI, we used gel, which is the BBC's own guidelines that I don't really understand, I have to admit. Yeah, they've actually recently uh, changed a little bit as well when they've redesigned their font from Helvetica, which Neville Brody introduced... Um, 
uh, in their guidelines, and nowadays they use a new font called Wreath. But uh, we were still using the Helvetica era gel guidelines. But um, BBC, uh, this this was a project which actually demonstrated the real value of having good quality guidelines and a pattern library, because one of the things that enabled me to compress the time frame of the design phase was uh, to make use, uh, to basically copy and paste uh, interface elements from from the gel guidelines and produce something that looked BBC branded, high quality, um, slick, uh, within a much shorter period of time. So normally all wireframes are a kind of an interim design stage where you are kind of postponing the, the final visual aesthetics uh, to a later stage and you're deliberately keeping things grey without necessarily final font sizes and measurements. But um, the gel guidelines were, uh, as long as I... Um, I could impl- implement them at the wireframe stage, we effectively had a polished design at the wireframe stage. I mean, I made certain design decisions at the wireframing stage, for example, that the fact that it was going to be a light-on-dark interface because it would be used in uh, dark environments where you want to avoid screen, screen glare. But um, effectively, this meant that it wasn't a post-wireframe design stage um, and the design was kind of polished at the wireframe stage. That, of course, helps the paper prototyping testing as well, where uh, putting it in front of users, they are much easy, uh, uh, it's easier for them to imagine it as a final application. Uh, as is my, my uh, sort of our normal working method, uh, the design was further refined in the browser um, at, the, at the point when I was doing HTML and CSS, which is... Uh, which all project benefits from because it's only then that you can uh, see how the design adapts to different amounts of content and different screen sizes. An application like this, which is often quite... uh, which in which you are juggling a large amount of content, in this case your content is your inputs, your different camera sources and audio sources, um, you want to make the most of the screen real estate you've got, so you don't just design within a fixed window where we always know what size it is. You sque- squeeze as many things into the screen as you can and adapt it to the amount of space that you have, and also try to make those things on the screen as large as you can make them. I mean, that was that was kind of what we realised afterwards as a sort of reverse responsive design thing. In the responsive design is normally um, you have a certain amount of things that you you're going to put it put in, and then you arrange them to fit differing sizes of screen. Whereas in this case, we had really a kind of set size of screen because it was a you know it was a known device that this was going to work on. Um, but the number of different preview screens that we wanted to fit on um, was quite variable. So you had you could have any. Different size yeah. groups. So how do you optimize How do you, you know, arrange the content at the time? Um, you know, yeah. seven different previews on uh, a fixed size. Um, yeah, this was surprisingly difficult. Actually, I'm I'm very used to responsive layouts, which where all the elements are sort of fixed proportions of the amount of screen real estate. But certain things made this extra tricky. For example, you're dealing with video thumbnails of a certain of a fixed aspect ratio. CSS is actually extremely bad at dealing with aspect ratios. There's no real way of creating a container with one side a proportion of the other side. Um, we uh, the, the whole layout was based on uh, Flexbox in CSS, which without which it probably would have been far more difficult. Mm-hmm. But even so, you rapidly come up against the use cases that was foreseen 
uh, in Flexbox and then you have to start helping out the visual layout using JavaScript. And at that point, yes. uh, my expertise runs out and Ryan Rice has to step in. I sort of stepped in and uh, added some JavaScript that um, looked at um, the number of different things we had to fit on screen and sort of predicted what was going to be the best layout mm-hmm. and then you know, rendered that and uh, used the Flexbox CSS just to kind of uh, deal with the sort of fine detail of then arranging that to the right size. I mean, basically, I ended up doing maths again. Yes, there's a lot of maths. How about that? Yes. Um, Twice in one project. I should note, note that um, during this design phase, of course, and as results were coming back from user testing, it was in a continuous state of evolution and that is, from a developer's point of view and a project manager's point of view, a bit of a nightmare as your specifications are shifting while you are building it. So I had to be incredibly careful at, first of all, prioritizing which changes are really need to be made, but also to allow the product to actually improve as I work on it and as I learn from the tests. Um, I had to make sure that all the changes were communicated to de- uh, developers yeah, in uh, a way that doesn't waste their time. Yeah, and we tried a few different approaches for that, and in the end, GitHub really supported that with, you know, you, you putting good comments against every commit and keeping lists of the commits that we needed to accommodate. Even then, I missed a few. It was a very difficult change management proposition, really, to, mm. to take the design and manage the changes across what was quite a complicated code base by the end, especially because it was in a permanent state of needing refactor, which just made it even harder. We, we talked about the uh, sort of the interface user uh, uh, interface vocabulary at the start, where we wanted to make sure that we are using the language that the operators are going to be familiar with, and so forth. We also had the vocabulary. Uh, a, a kind of a component vocabulary that had to be established very early on so that we always refer to a particular component yeah. or part of the screen and so forth with the same word and we use those that, that, that language in the code we use that language in, in version mm. change um, changed logs because it's a, it was a, it's a real challenge when you know I can remember quite early on I made a couple of design decisions about how things were different or related based on the design at the time and then the design evolves and those mm. decisions turn out to have been poor ones um, <laughs> but it's all baked into the code at that point it mm. is it changes the is the enemy of writing good software but yet it's the thing that we have to try our best to accommodate yeah well as, as I sort of very idealistically state that as lo- if things are changing from a user experience designer's point of view it means they are improving well I hope so um, <laughs> and you, the last thing that you want is to entirely prevent change from occurring yeah um, which is very often the problem with waterfall model projects where you are forced to accept the decisions that you've made months ago Absolutely. and never yeah. change them. But of course, what, in the case yeah. of this project, uh, accepting decisions we made last week. Yes, <laughs> uh, this morning. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. right, yeah. Well, of course, you know, that all comes down to the economics of it. Waterfall was designed when later change was vastly more expensive. You know, the, mm. the, the agile in the end has come down to change in economics because mm-hmm. of tooling as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. But having the, the designer and the developers all using the same language so that we can actually uh, yeah, that was really describe effective. things really, unambiguously. Really yeah. and, I really mean, also the up. work that you've done to um, prepare the HTML was quite, it was done with React in mind as well, so there was a good mm-hmm. um, So overlap. that's one, that's the first time anyone's mentioned React, <laughs> which is interesting because... Um, I think it worked spectacularly well, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Part of the reason we're not talking about it here is it just literally did everything it was supposed to. Yep. Uh, fabulous disappeared into the background yeah. and just did its did its job. Yeah. Well, there was a th- there was a design point uh, uh, step in the second week of the project where the very na- the nascent 
early wireframes were componentized in a conversation bet- between Alex and myself, uh, where we started just decomposing the interface into functional components, things which we don't necessarily know what they look like yet, but we know that they will exist and what they will do. So then we come up with component names for them um, that sort of persisted through the lifespan, uh, lifespan of the project. They were used within the design documentation, they were used in HTML code, they were used in React. Um, and, yeah, and that's probably going to be a, a standard way of working for us on pretty yeah, much think, all pro- projects. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's only been like the way I've worked probably for the last three, four projects. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it certainly takes the edge off the, the complexity of, of merging design yeah. changes into a code base yeah, when, absolutely. you know, it's not a text merge, it's a... Yeah. It's a very, very high-level decision-making Absolutely. And, and, and it's an element where um, we have to accommodate the fact that one of the big customers, one of the big stakeholders in your code is other people. It's not just the computer running it. Um, and having a shared terminology across the code base allows you to discuss it with human beings, whereas the computers don't care. You could call everything X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and they don't care. Humans really, really care that the names are meaningful. Though... Oh, it's painful sometimes. <laughs> you know, this is the this is the tray, and this is the yes. tray. This list. is also a tray. Can we call <laughs> this an object? The no, tray tray. Let's call it a class. No, we no. It's just a thing. Oh, How yeah. many words for thing have yeah. we got? Let's also <laughs> overload everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, naming things are hard. <laughs> sometimes sometimes yeah, that yeah. seems to take yeah. longer than anything. It really, it's well, one of the hard <laughs> problems in computer science, isn't it? Um, okay, well. Uh, that was really interesting. So, so just wrap this up. So all the technologies we use here, so React is totally ready for prime time. If you're building something on the web right now, you should almost certainly be using it, I think. Um, uh, WebRTC, it be dragons, I think. Mm. Be super careful if you ever want to use WebRTC. But also, um, there, are, there exist libraries if you're going to do peer-to-peer um, WebRTC stuff. Uh, I can strongly recommend you use one of those where other people have kind of uh, black boxed some of the more awkward edges of it. Um, if you're going to use it for anything other than that intended purpose, though, um, you're going to have to build those boxes yourself and it's going to be a painful and experience. Maybe use Dash. And maybe use <laughs> Dash instead and don't, yeah. do, don't use WebRTC. Uh, the video mixing stuff works remarkably well um, and you can totally do that in a browser. Now, mm. if, if you can know that your users have a nice, fast computer... It maybe won't run an old Android phone, though. Just bear that in mind. <laughs> um, um, and uh, observables, wonderful concept. RxJS, bit hairy, but worked very well. Pick the right version of RxJS. Um, yeah, pick the right version of RxJS. Wow. Don't get really confused. Did we? we don't I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't know. How, how do you tell? Don't read the documentation for one version while using the other version because they are mysteriously mm-hmm. different. Um, and the applica- this application was used. Uh, live video mixing was done at the Edinburgh Festival. Oh. And people watched the output, which is pretty spectacular, which we're really pleased about. And um, hopefully we'll be doing some more work on the project. And if we are, there will be many, many more blog posts, I can guarantee that. <laughs> right, well, thank you very much, guys, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.